So let's turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 11. This is our third week in chapter 11, a chapter that describes the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus had been in the grave for four days. Well, with our track, he's been in there for 21 days, so it's time to get him out, okay? Let's get Lazarus out of the grave. Amy and I don't go to the movies very often, once or twice a year, mainly because we're homebodies and we like to just stay at home. But when we do go, we invariably get into a disagreement about what time we're going to leave to arrive at the theater. You see, I like to leave the house about 10 minutes before the scheduled showtime. It takes 15 minutes or so to get to the theater, to find a parking place and walk in, another five to 10 minutes to get our ticket and to purchase the popcorn and the Coke, and then another minute or two to get to our seats. And about that time, the previews are over and the feature begins. Amy, on the other hand, wants to see all the previews. She says, I don't want to miss them. I said, why don't you want to miss them? It's not like we're actually going to go back and watch them. We don't ever go to the movies. So who wins out? Amy wins out. We go early and we watch all the previews. What we have here in John 11 is a preview of coming attractions. We're getting a glimpse of what Jesus will powerfully accomplish. And just like a good movie trailer, we can pick up on the different elements the character, the plot line, and even the climactic conclusion, which then gives us an appetite and an anticipation for what's ahead. Here we see last week that Jesus approached the village of Bethany, the village where Lazarus and his two sisters lived, Martha and Mary. Lazarus has died. By the time Jesus shows up, he's been in the tomb again for four days. Martha hears that Jesus is nearby, and she goes out of the village to meet him as he's arriving. They have a conversation there. We saw that last week. And in that conversation, uh, she expressed some bit of regret. Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, we've seen and she's seen and heard of Jesus' miraculous power to heal the sick, to give sight to the blind. And she says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. His response to her was simply to give her a unique revelation of his identity, of his nature. He said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. What does he mean by that? I am is the personal name of God, Yahweh. I am the resurrection. He is the means. He is the hope. He is the empowerment, empowerment for any future resurrection. And he is the life. Any life you have, physical life, emotional life, spiritual life, finds its source in Jesus. But as the saying goes, actions speak louder than words, right? So when we come to this section of John 11, we will in fact see that Jesus is going to back up that claim that he's the resurrection and the life. He's going to back up that title in a powerful and profound way. So look with me in your Bibles or on the sermon outline in the bulletin. I'm going to read our focal text. This is God's word. Listen to it. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, 
The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. I don't think it's an accident that chapter 11 is in the very central point in the gospel of John. It is the hinge chapter upon which the entire book turns. The first 10 chapters describe for us Jesus's ministry throughout Galilee and Judea. Then you get to this village of Bethany, just two miles outside of the capital city. You move to chapter 12, as we'll see next week, and it begins to record all the happenings of what we call Holy Week, the last week of Jesus' life. Right here, this chapter is the hinge. And as we just read, Martha's sister Mary comes into the scene, and in so doing, she shows some similarities with Martha and some contrasts as well. She says the exact same thing, word for word, verbatim, that her sister Martha said to Jesus when she saw him. What was that? In verse 21, Martha said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What this tells me is these sisters had this conversation. As Jesus delayed in coming, they had a conversation together. Well, if Jesus would have been here, If only he would have been here, if only he would have made it in time, our brother would not have died. Now, it seems from the narrative that Mary did not know that Jesus had come and was talking with Martha because Martha goes and tells her, hey, Mary, Jesus wants you to come. He's got something to say to you. And here, once again, we see just a contrast in personalities. Martha is very matter-of-fact, and Mary, she wears her emotions on her sleeve. And friends, this is one example of why we know the Bible is true. The Bible is true because it presents to us 
all of the failures and the flaws, the, the quirks and the curiosities of the heroes and protagonists of this book. That demonstrates its veracity, its truthfulness, unlike other so-called sacred books of other so-called faiths, where they gloss over the weaknesses or the quirks. Here the Bible presents them honestly. So Mary's emotion is evident. She runs out of the house when she gets the private word from Martha that Jesus has come. The mourners who were gathered there weeping and consoling, they think, well, Mary must be running to the grave just to weep at the tomb of Lazarus, but she goes in the opposite direction, and they follow her. She goes to meet Jesus on the road. And as we look at this second interaction between Jesus and this other sister of Lazarus, and then the accompanying elements of the resurrection that Jesus performs at the end of this section, I want us to notice three things about Jesus that emerge from this passage. Three powerful truths about our Savior Jesus. The first one I want us to see is this. Number one, I want us to notice his compassion over the pain of death. His compassion over the pain of death. And we see that here. This gut-level ethos, visceral emotion from Jesus over the pain and the, the loss of these sisters because of the death of their brother Lazarus. It is striking to notice Jesus' compassion in this passage, mainly because throughout the Gospel of John, and particularly in the prologue in chapter 1, Jesus has, has been presented as the eternal God of the universe. Jesus is God, amen? And we don't think in our preconceived notions about God that God cries. That God weeps. We don't think that God does these things because God is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's omniscient. He's unchangeable. He's transcendent, immutable. He is wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, truth. This is God and this is Jesus. But yet Jesus, the Son of God, weeps. Jesus God, in human flesh, is pained. God can't die, but Jesus, as God, dies. This is the mystery and the magnificence of the incarnation. What we see in Jesus here is that he is feeling what humans feel. He feels it. Now, there's a couple things about this compassion he shows I want to point out. First of all, the very real hurt of loss. The hurt of loss. We know they're in pain, and we know they're experiencing this depth of loss and grief simply by the way John records Mary's reaction when she arrives at Jesus' place. Verse 32 says, Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, She fell at his feet. Often in the Bible, whenever someone falls at another's feet is an act of worship or devotion, and certainly there's some of that going on here. But I couldn't help but think about some depictions we've probably seen in movies. I was thinking of Saving Private Ryan. Whenever the uh, member of the military shows up at the front doorstep of the Ryan household and delivers the devastating news, another son 
has been killed in action. What does the mom do? She falls to the floor. She goes limp because of the grief. I think that's something of what we see happening here. Mary comes to Jesus, and she falls down, loses all strength to hold herself up. She is grieving deeply. Did you happen to notice that everyone in this account is sad? Martha, we saw last week, is in great despair. Mary falls at Jesus' feet, weeping. John describes the Jews as weeping. And the shortest verse in the Bible, verse 32, Jesus wept. Everybody's weeping. Everybody's sad. This is real. This is painful. This hurts. A few weeks ago, our family felt this hurt. We felt this pain. We knew my mother-in-law was sick and that my father-in-law, David, had called an ambulance because she was unresponsive. A few moments later, I, I get a call from Amy, and I've never heard her cry like that. She's gone. I immediately FaceTimed my five children as they answered the phone. Amber was all the way in Mexico, and I delivered the news to them. Your grandma just died. It is painful. It hurts. The loss is real. And Jesus gets right up in the middle of that. He feels it. If you've experienced loss, it's not hard for you to identify with what they're going through. There's the hurt of loss, but I want you to consider the heart of the Lord. We see the heart of the Lord expressed, again, in the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept, but in verse 33, John gives something of a fuller picture of Jesus' emotion. Look at what he writes in verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. I want you to circle those two words on your outline or in your Bible, deeply moved. That two-word phrase translates a single word in the Greek. You don't need to know what it is. It's not important. But Bible commentators have written pages and pages and pages on this single word that they might elucidate what this word means. It's only used five times in the entire New Testament, and two of the five times are right here in John 11. In verse 33 and again in verse 38, when John writes, Then Jesus deeply moved again. Let me show you a couple of definitions from two different Greek dictionaries that might help us get a handle on what this word means and what John's communicating. First, Strong's Dictionary defines this word like this. I snort. <laughs> With a notion of coercion, springing out of displeasure, anger, indignation, antagonism. Express indignant displeasure with someone. And then Thayer's Lexicon defines it as followed. To be moved with anger, to snort, of horses, German, darein schnauben, to be very angry, to be moved with indignation. Why did Thayer's include the German? I don't know, but I included it. I think it gives something of the guttural meaning of this word. 
This is to be snorting mad. You ever been snorting mad before? I mean, just angry. You're frothing at the mouth. Jesus is hot. He's mad. He is indignant. The million-dollar question is, what's he so mad about? What is Jesus angry over? Well, there's a few options. Perhaps Jesus was angry because of these sisters' lack of faith. Come on, guys. You've heard what I've done. You've seen what I've done. Don't you think I can do something here? That's one option. Maybe he's mad at their unbelief in him. Another option is perhaps Jesus is snorting mad at these paid mourners. Here, the sisters are weeping. He's weeping, and then you have this disingenuous grief. They're just crying because they're going to get a paycheck, maybe. But a third option of why Jesus is snorting mad is because, and it's the one where I land, is because of the pervasive impact of death on creation. And the impact of death on his friends in particular. The pain and the loss and the hurt that these people are experiencing made Jesus snorting mad. I've preached this passage on one other occasion from this pulpit. September 29th, 2018. The funeral of Aubrey Real. If you don't know her story, we were having a revival of sorts here, a series of meetings. She and her mother were going to Sonic to get something to eat before coming to the children's events here. And they were hit by a card. She was killed on impact. Ten years old. I went to the hospital where Leanna was being treated in a trauma room and walked in and there was her husband and Aubrey's father, Michael. I embraced him. He began to weep. And he said this. Troy's not supposed to be this way. It's not supposed to be this way. And truer words could not be spoken. It is not supposed to be this way. This is not God's design. God created a world perfect and pristine. But because of human sin over multiple millennia, every molecule of Jesus' perfect creation has been distorted and mutated to death. It's not supposed to be this way. There was not a single flaw. And think about it. Jesus created all things. All things were created by him and for him. He knows creation was perfect the way he made it. And here he is at this graveside with two people he loves, and he is snorting mad because of the perversion and the corruption of what he created that results in death. Have you ever thought about why is Jesus weeping here? Why is he crying? Is he crying over the death of Lazarus? I don't think so. You see, because he knows in about, oh, 90 seconds, he's going to be alive. <laughs> I don't think he's grieving the death of Lazarus. 
It's like if you happen to be at some gathering with lots of people and all of a sudden people are frantic and they're crying because a little boy is missing and they're running around looking for the little boy and someone notices you, you're just simply sitting there eating a pretzel. Then why aren't you frantic? And he says, you say, because I can see the little boy underneath the tablecloth right there. It's been there the whole time. You don't get upset if you know the answer. I don't think he's upset about the fact that Lazarus has died because he's going to resurrect him. He's upset, he's crying, he's indignant over the pain of death that's been brought upon these people. This is not the only place we see Jesus weeping in the Bible. Hebrews 5 describes his praying like this. It says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Let me ask you, have you ever prayed like that? Loud cries, tears. In Luke 19, when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry on the back of the foal of a donkey, notice what Luke says happened. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. He is weeping over the lostness and the rebellion of that city. And I would ask, do you ever weep over the lostness in Chattanooga? Do you ever weep over the rebellion in our world? We're preparing to go into a 40-day fast next Sunday, and I'll give you some instruction at the close of our service about that. But I would tell you, let this reality compel you to be engaged in this fast. Let us consider how we can pray about the brokenness in our world. Let us fast and pray over those who are experiencing the very real consequences of sin. Let us fast and pray over the demonic assignments that have happened to our children. Jesus intended when he created all things by the word of his power for them to be perfect, but they have been perverted, and so Jesus weeps. And as Jesus approaches the grave of the friend, he entered into their grief. He felt their pain. He groans in anger. And friends, let me tell you, this is a preview of coming attractions. Because Jesus knows it's not supposed to be this way. Ten-year-olds are not supposed to be cut down in the beginning of their life. Gunmen are not supposed to come on university campuses like what happened on Monday and kill young college students. It's not supposed to be this way. Tsunamis and earthquakes are not supposed to destroy whole villages and their inhabitants. It's not supposed to be this way. Children are not supposed to be exposed to sexual deviants who steal their innocence and create confusion in their identity the way God created them. It's not supposed to be this way. And Jesus comes into the middle of this junk and he weeps, and he grieves, and he's angry. And this is a preview of coming attractions. Because guess, guess what? Jesus enters right into your grief. Jesus enters right into your situation, into your pain, into your loss. And he weeps with those 
who weep. He is a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. So we see, first of all, Jesus has compassion over this deep pain caused by death. But secondly, I want you to see, here's the good news, his command over the power of death. Jesus demonstrates his command over the power of death. You know, as disciples of Jesus, it only makes sense that we would feel the same type of sorrow and also accompanying indignation that death causes, that Jesus feels. It's only appropriate that we enter into that pain, that we enter into that uh, suffering. But there is a difference and there is a distinction between how followers of Jesus can act with these things and Jesus does. You see, because Jesus is the only person who ever walked the planet that had the power and the wherewithal to do something about it. I think sometimes the miracle of the raising of Lazarus from the dead is not as striking and profound and frankly shocking to us because one, if you grew up in church, you've heard this story dozens, perhaps hundreds of times. But two, I'm afraid that in our modern era today, we have become so sanitized to the reality of death. Normally when a loved one dies, you cover the body, you keep the children away from the cadaver laying in the next room, you call the funeral home, they come and they zip it up and whisk it away. They fix the hair, they do the makeup, they put it in a coffin, they take care of the body. The next time you see your loved one, he or she is lying in a satin-lined coffin with flowers and plants around. Nice, soft music playing in the background. Beautiful flowers and plants. As Jesus makes his way over to Lazarus' grave, he instructs those who are standing around to do something. He says, hey, guys, move the stone covering the grave. And in perhaps the most gut-level, honest response in all the Bible, what does Martha say? Look again at verse 39. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Growing up and working eight years of my adult life on a commercial livestock operation, I was regularly exposed to dead bodies. Daily, dead bodies. Three to five pound piglets. Occasionally, three to five hundred pound sows and boars. Every day. Uh, we on our farm in Florida had three main finishing barns that were 300 feet long and they held in each one of them on average 12 to 1500 animals. So on a daily basis, I had to do a well check of over 4,000 animals. It's a visual check, and I walk through and I look for animals that look like they might be sickly, might need to be nursed back to health, but also, honestly, I'm looking for dead animals that I pull out of the pen. As you might imagine, when there's a massive sea of livestock like that, you don't always see the dead ones. The next day, you may miss it on day two. But I promise you, you will not miss it on day three. The smell is so pungent, it hits your olfactories 100 feet from where that dead carcass is laying. You don't have a problem finding it? 
you follow your nose. And then you have the wonderful job of picking it up and throwing it out of the pen. Am I grossing you out yet? We've become so sanitized with the nature of death and the processes that accompany death. I think the majesty and the glory of this resurrection is all but lost on us. Martha says, Lord, by this time it's going to stink. He's been in the grave for four days. Lord, please don't let the last memory our friends and neighbors have of my dear departed brother be that pungent smell emanating from his grave. Don't move the stone. It's going to be so embarrassing. How did Jesus respond to Martha's request? Verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? Now, if you read the previous paragraph, you don't find a record of Jesus telling Martha that, but obviously he did because he reminded her of it. We do see that Jesus told his disciples they could expect to see the glory of God up in verse 4 of this chapter. So here we have the disciples, Martha, Mary, gathered friends, family, and they have the magnificent privilege to behold the glory of God as demonstrated in the resurrection power of Jesus' command. Notice how it happened. Verse 41. So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Sometimes we pray so people will hear what we're praying. Verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The Greek words there for loud voice are megaphone. Megaphone. Lazarus, come out. Wow. You've, you've probably heard it said before that if Jesus had not identified Lazarus specifically, every grave in that cemetery would have popped open. Such is the power of Jesus' command. We see his compassion over the pain of death, his command over the power of death. But finally, I want you to notice his conquer over the penalty of death. Notice what happens after Jesus shouts megaphone for Lazarus to come out. The man who had died came out his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. I love how understated John is here. If this was a Hollywood depiction, beams of light would come protruding from the grave, the clouds would part, the sun would shine, and here comes Lazarus, kind of swagger out. Here I am. But that's not what happened. That's why John didn't record it that way. We know from first century historians that the burial practices of the Hebrews in this area, they uh, would bury people like this. They would have a large linen sheet, twice as long as what a body would be. And they would lay the corpse on top of the sheet with the feet at the bottom edge. And then we'd take the other long end of that sheet and they would fold it over the body on top, folding it at the head. Then they would have a face wrap that they would put around the head. And then they would take strips of linen and they would bind up that shroud, that sheet, 
They would particularly bind them at the hands and at the feet so no limbs come popping out of the sheet when they're moving the corpse. This is how they buried Lazarus. So picture it in your mind. Lazarus comes out of the grave. His face is wrapped with the face cloth. His ankles are tightly bound by the linen strips. His hands are bound to the burial cloth. How does he come out? I don't know. He's got to waddle. He's got to shuffle. He's got to hop. He can't walk. And he just all of a sudden, you see him at the edge of the entrance. There he is. Absolutely amazing. Now, why does John include these details about Lazarus being bound up with the burial cloths? Because this is a preview of a coming attraction. See, if you move to chapter 20, we will see the resurrection of Jesus. And what John is creating here is a striking contrast between the resurrection of Lazarus and the resurrection of Jesus. Look at chapter 19, verse 40. We see he's buried, Jesus, in the exact same manner as Lazarus. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So they buried Jesus exactly the way Lazarus was buried just a week earlier. They put him in a cave, in a tomb, and covered it with a stone, the same way they buried Lazarus. But this is where the similarities end. Because you turn the page to chapter 20 and you get John's eyewitness account of what he saw when arriving to the grave. You see, he won in a foot race with Peter. He was the first one there. Notice what he records in verse 5 through 7. This is John. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Here comes Simon Peter. He came following him and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Well, that's strange. Why, on this glorious resurrection Sunday morning, does John take the time to record Jesus' laundry practices? He just wants us to know that Jesus, he was neat and tidy, folded his sheets and pillowcases. Is that what he's recording this for? No, he wants us to understand because every detail matters. The resurrection of Lazarus is not the same as the resurrection of Jesus. You see, because Lazarus was brought back from the dead by the power of another, Jesus was brought back from the dead by the virtue of his own resurrection authority. And when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he routed death and he vanquished the grave forever. But why was Jesus in the grave to begin with? The wages of Sin is death. Jesus never sinned. The reason Jesus was in the grave was because he died for you. He took the penalty for your sin and my sin, but he conquered over death that he might provide new life for all who believe in him. And unlike Lazarus, Jesus didn't need anybody to unbind him. And he folds up those grave clothes and that head covering, I think, in a show. Not going to need those anymore. Because unlike Lazarus, who was resurrected and then would die again, Jesus was resurrected never to die again. And this is the promise. 
This is the promise of resurrection. This is the preview of coming attractions that all who trust in him, who believe in his name, you'll come out of the grave and you'll live forever. Now, I want us to come back to the resurrection of Lazarus as I close. Did you notice that in that resurrection account that Jesus instructed other people to move the stone? Did you notice that Jesus instructed other people to remove the binding of cloths around Lazarus? Jesus had just spoken and a four-day dead cadaver comes to life. Could Jesus have spoken and said, stone, be moved over there? Yes, of course. Could Jesus have spoken and removed the grave clothes? Of course. But in his grace, he chose to involve other people in the process of resurrection. Isn't this beautiful? Does God need you? No. Are you an indispensable component to the work of revival, renewal, resurrection? No, you're not. I'm not either. But by grace, God chooses to use us in the process of resurrection. He uses us to remove those stones of misunderstanding, those stones of error, to unbind those stinky, pungent grave clothes of doubt and disbelief. We get to speak the gospel, lead the gospel, live the gospel, but the resurrection of someone from death to life is only by the power of Jesus' command. But by grace, he's called us to be involved in the process. We do preparatory work, but he does the resurrection. And that really leads to the final thought I want to leave you with today as we prepare to go to this communion meal. It's a quote from A.W. Pink, and it says this, There is no higher privilege this side of heaven than for us to be used by the Lord in rolling away gravestones and removing grave clothes.